You're listening to The Pipeline Show. Tell me his name again. With Guy Flaming. Who? This is The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming, and it's the NCAA Campus Report segment uh, brought to you by College Hockey, Inc. If you are uh, a player or you have a player in your family that is exploring all your options and uh, want to know more about the NCAA College Hockey path, uh, that's a great place uh, to start your search is at collegehockeyinc.com. Uh, lots of uh, resources there, and you can make contact with the people at the College Hockey, Inc., and uh, they'll answer your questions uh, gladly, tell you what you need to do to maintain your eligibility and things like that. Uh, the campus report today, we're uh, zeroing in and focusing on uh, Hockey East, and, of course, that means uh, Jimmy Connolly from USCHO is back on the Pipeline Show. Jimmy, uh, thanks for taking the time once again. How are you? I'm doing well. Always a pleasure to talk. Uh, this time of year, you know the puck's on the ice. That's the the best part. Yes. Well, I know some teams got in action uh, last week in some non-conference games, but uh, things get going uh, for real here uh, this weekend. Uh, and when it comes to Hockey East, it was kind of a bit of a down year last year, wouldn't it? I think that's fair to say. Uh, does does the conference balance back this year, or uh, how do you? What do you think of the overall strength of the conference this year? Well, I, you know, I don't know if you can totally clarify the classify last year as a down year. I mean, maybe your perennial powers weren't where you'd expect them, BC and BU didn't have great years overall. Um, you know, Lowell, which had been on the up and up, you know, had second, missed its second consecutive tournament. But then you put UMass and Providence in the, in the Frozen Four and obviously UMass in the national championship game. Uh, they were humbled for sure by a very good Minnesota Duluth team. But I think it was a pretty decent year. Uh, they got better as the year went on. And I think that that's something they want to build on. Their second half non-conference record was very good. Um, and, you know, week one, pretty good. Merrimack, yeah, they had their little slip, losing two out of Lake State, but, you know, you had a sweep for Lowell, you know, a couple of other teams in action. Providence and Maine actually played a league game, and Providence uh, dominated. You know, people had some questions whether Providence would be a, a great team after all they lost, but they, you know, outshot Maine 59-29 and beat them 7-0. So mm-hmm. there's some there's some definite positive signs, and I think some high expectations. You have some really good recruiting classes at BC and BU, uh, even Lowell has a pretty good one, even though it's not filled with draft picks and big names. So I, I think there's a lot of uh, still questions maybe about the league, but I think there's you know a lot more to be optimistic for this year maybe than there has in a couple of years. Well, and you mentioned the recruiting classes uh, for BC and BU. It was much the same the last couple of years. It didn't really seem to help them uh, in the last couple of years, even though they were bringing in some some pretty high-caliber players. Yeah, BU specifically. Yeah. You know, I think you look back, and I don't know the exact numbers, but it's something like you know maybe eight first rounders in the last three years, and I think fifteen first or second rounders over the last three years. But talking to David Quint, who's the previous coach, and then Albie O'Connell, who stepped in last year uh, when David went to the uh, New York Rangers, both of them talked about some of the struggles that you can have when you only go after the highest of high end recruits. And you get some great players. They're not going to stay at your school for a long time. Some of them, you know, are one foot out the door in January, which is not very helpful. And then there's also the problem of, you know, recruiting people that have always been their first line center, their first line wing, their top defensive pair. And you're not always going to be able to be that. You know, you can't put seven first line centers on the first line. Uh, it's just not logistically logistically possible, or even forwards for that matter. You know, it's it's just a difficult thing, and you know, sometimes you have the egos. And you know, I was just talking to Jerry York a, a little while ago, and he said every player has an ego, even if you're a fourth liner trying to get to the third line. You have an ego, and you have a competitiveness to you. 
but it's how you know how you mix that up. And he said to me, you can't just put it all in a microwave and it mixes perfectly. You've got to work on that chemistry. I think that's what maybe a BU specifically, you know, struggled with. And talking with LB O'Connell before the season, um, he acknowledged that and he said some of the, some of the things he tried to do was not go after all blue chippers, have a couple of solid character players, some guys that maybe were even older, because you know when you're getting these blue chip guys from the national team development program, they're 18 years old, sometimes coming in at 17. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, it's not a bad idea to have a couple of 20-year-old freshmen on your lineup because schools like UMass Lowell or UNH, even Providence for that matter, have a few of those players. So when you get it, you know, you get into the nitty-gritty of it, those bigger, stronger players, when those guys are seniors and they stay around for four years, they're 25 years old, 24 years old, and just the maturity of their bodies can sometimes be something to wear you down. So, you know, you look at Lowell and what they built there, you know, over the last seven years, and that was a, a lot of their success. They'd have a lot of 24 and 25-year-old seniors and not too many 17 18 year old freshmen. So I think now a day in college hockey, and it's not just hockey, East, it's every league, it's trying to find that right mix of players that it's not just, skill or talent or character or ego it's sometimes age it's size it's it's you know the longevity of a player because you don't want a player to there's not a lot of views that coaches say to you i'd I'd take greatest player i'd take you know jack eichel for one year anytime even though i know it's only for one year sure you would but it is not an ability to build a longevity when all of your really you know a lot of your recruits are one and done or two and done. Is there also something to be said about recruiting guys? And, and you'd prefer them either to play in the uh, USHL or the NAHL or one of the junior A leagues in Canada rather than coming straight from high school. I, and I go back to Providence last year with Jay O'Brien. I mean, a first-round pick of the Flyers obviously found it to be a, a pretty big jump up uh, to step right into the NCAA. And now he's gone back to junior A's playing in the BCHL with Penticton and ripping up that league. Um, clearly might be too good for that league, but wasn't ready to step right into the NCAA last year. Is there something to, to be said for that? Possibly. You know, I think that each uh, player is probably a different case. Sure. Um, and in, in, in O'Brien's case, you know, I don't, I just don't know, you know, maybe not physically ready, maybe not, not emotionally ready. I do think that, you know, I, I, I'm almost 30 years in the college game now. And when I was in school myself, almost, a quarter of the players came right from high school. Maybe you sent the guy that needed a little bit more maturity of development out to the USHL, or maybe you sent him up to, you know, one of the, the junior B leagues up in Canada or something like that. But for the most part, you, you, you thought that you could get them out of high school. Maybe you had to redshirt a guy because he wasn't that mature and he'd be there for five years or whatever it might be. But that trend has definitely changed. And you see a lot of the, the parents knowing that if, my kid's 14 and he's good. He can't be playing on this high school team. He needs to be out, you know, somewhere in the Midwest. And that, you know, that's why you look at the New England high school leagues that were so strong for so long. And you had guys like Tom Barrasso. Uh, I could name 20 more if I had more time to think about them. But, you know, but you go back to the 80s and some of these Jackie O'Callaghan, like the, the 80 Olympic team, the guys that came from Minnesota and Massachusetts all had played high school. There was not no real thought of playing junior. That's just all just changed so much. And I think that players that do go and play that 80-plus game schedule at the junior level, they learn a lot. They get a lot more ice time. They get a lot more teaching. 
uh, more of those game moments that that they can build, you know, the the character in a player. Um, and so, but you you also have some players that can just jump in, and maybe they played in a New England prep league as opposed to high school. Same thing. You're still going to school every day. You're still acting the same way. You're just playing all of your games against higher end talent. So I guess it, it's just difficult. I think it's difficult to take the step from any Massachusetts or New England high school. Now, if we want to change that over to Minnesota, let's talk about something different. I think the Minnesota high schools are a little bit different. So that's the one area of the country that I do see a lot of kids taking, you know, that step more directly. But even there, you see a few guys popping out to the USHL Mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, are really good players. But if they if they feel that they're not ready or their parents or their family's advisor or their coach that's recruiting them feels they're not ready, I think it's always not it's never a bad step to come into college a little later. You're only going to be more mature and more ready. Jimmy Connolly from USCHO, my guest here on the Pipeline Show, looking at the Hockey East Conference. Uh, let's get to the teams. And uh, Boston College was the uh, number, the first place uh, uh, winner in the uh, winner, I don't know, coaches poll, uh, preseason coaches poll. They're uh, the number one ranked team. Do you see it the same way? Uh, do you expect BC to be the top team? Uh, I think it's a toss-up between maybe them and UMass. You can throw... Northeastern. I, I, the way I look at it, there's six teams that could potentially win this league right now. And, and BC, BU, uh, Providence, UMass, Northeastern, and Lowell, I think all have the, the teams that could do it. You know, would UMass and BC be the two that I would put at the top of that list? Absolutely. Um, but I, I really do see it as kind of a pack of six. They're all going to fight for that home ice playoff spot where the top four get that first round home ice. Um, but I do see every one of them capable. And then you probably have a small pack of three teams, which would be uh, Connecticut, Vermont, and New Hampshire, that could that they're going to challenge for those home ice spots and maybe, you know, knock a team like, you know, uh, maybe it's Lowell, maybe it's Providence, maybe it's Northeastern, knock them out of that top four, and these teams could be a surprise. And then I, do, I really do see that a big jump between all of those nine schools and then 10 and 11 in Maine. Uh, in Merrimack, I think both of those programs are kind of set up and they're, I don't know if they're rebuilding or just they're, they're just not going to be that strong. But so I see a lot of teams that could be at the top. Uh, but I, I do feel like DC and UMass should be in a class by themselves. Saying something for UMass. So when they lose, uh, arguably their two best players in Kale McCarr and, and Mario Ferraro, who step right into the NHL, uh, both of them, uh, starting uh, in the NHL this season. And yet they're still considered to be you know, right near the top of, of Hockey East. Despite the loss of those two guys, who leads the way now for uh, the Minutemen? Well, I think, you know, Philly Lindbergh and Mike and Matt Murray on the back end are just such phenomenal goaltenders, and they, they both um, proved it last season. You know, I think Mitchell Chafee is was really good, and there, there's also some members of the junior class. If you go back to the, this year's junior class when they were freshmen, I think Oliver Chow was in there. Yeah. Uh, they, they all they were standout players then, and, and then you had Kale McCarr and, and Mario Ferraro on the back end. They were getting a lot of attention, but th- that was a pretty darn good team that was finding ways to score goals. Um, then they added uh, Jacob Pritchard as a grad transfer. He was pretty phenomenal. Obviously, they they've lost him as well. Um, but, you know, Mark Del Geizo is was a guy that if it wasn't for uh, Makar and Ferraro probably gets mentioned a lot more as one of the elite D-men in the league. So I just feel like they still have a lot of pieces. Um, they're going to have to fill holes. But, you know, talking to um, 
uh, talking to Greg Carville before the season, he just said experience those holes. And we've experienced a lot last year and they learned. And he also was very specific in pointing out that he was very happy that if his team was not going to win the national championship game, that they kind of were never in the game. Mm-hmm. He said it was good to be humbled. He said it's better to, to lose a game three nothing than four three in overtime because then you'll think you you were there and you were ready to win. He says he knows his team needs to take another step to win that national title game, and I think they're ready to, to do it. I, I think that it'll be more challenging without some phenomenal players, especially a guy like Cam McCarr who contributed so much to the offense. But I think that that team has a lot of the pieces in place to, to continue to build and continue to be a good program. When you have a great coach like Greg Carville, that helps as well. Uh, Providence and Northeastern figure uh, highly in the uh, uh, coaches poll as well. I know you mentioned those two clubs in your, in your uh, uh, list of uh, teams that you think can uh, contend for the league uh, title. Um, tell me about Providence and uh, do they, I mean, are they a lot different than last year in terms of recruiting class? Who do they have coming in of note and, and maybe even through Hockey East to reel off, rattle off some of the names of the freshmen that you're going to be keeping an eye on? Well, I'll tell you, we can talk about recruiting classes, but I think the biggest addition that Providence made uh, was their goaltender, Michael Lackey. They get Harvard's you know, three-year goaltender who had you know, finished all of his credits and was ready to graduate. He goes in as a graduate transfer, only there for one year, but this will be – this is pretty good timing because you think of the fact uh, that you lost a very good goaltender in Hayden hockey. You've got to have somebody that on the back end can be your stopgap. And, and that just gives the confidence of the players. in front. They lost a lot though. Josh Wilkins was a heck of a player. Jacob Bryson, Casper um, Bjorkvist, I thought was, you know, arguably one of the more enjoyable forwards to watch in the league because he has so much uh, talent. Vinny DeArnay, Scott Conway. So they lost, a lot, but they bring back enough. Um, you know, Jack Dugan, uh, was, you know, pretty solid all last year. Um, Tice Thompson, you know, we, we know kind of that family's history with, you know, Tage from Yukon. Um, and then Greg Prince, we knew he was going to be good. He goes out and scores four goals against Maine in the opener. So we know that he's going to pack into the offense. So I just feel like that, that team, there's still question marks and not every game is going to be a seven nothing victory like it was, uh, last Saturday afternoon, but, I think that they have um, enough in their in their cupboard to be very competitive. And then you turn to Northeastern. Uh, they keep losing, of course. You know, they had a, a great class a couple of years ago, and then you lose get, you know, Caden Primo, who was you know, probably the best goaltender in the league last year. Um, but they bring back guys like Tyler Mattern and, and uh, Grant Josephag. Zach Solo, he's been a guy that's been overshadowed for two years because of all the great forwards ahead of him, but 15 goals a year ago. And then you know, again, another team that took the the transfer route and they brought in Craig Pantano from Merrimack, who was probably the best player on Merrimack's team last year. He'll come in as a grad transfer and play goaltender for Northeastern. Um, they added Brandon Van Reenzyke from New Hampshire, same type of thing. And then, you know, just a few freshmen here and there that I don't know a ton about, but that people are, are enough have enough positive thoughts about that I think they should be pretty competitive as well. The graduate transfer seems to be more prevalent in the last couple of years than it was uh, prior to that. What changed, and are you a fan of that? Um, I don't know if I'm a fan of it. That's a that's a. I, I love four year players, um, but they're far few and far between when you get the talented ones that we had in the NHL. 
Um, but what has changed, I think, has been a lot of teams' approaches to the the educational part of college hockey. You know, when I was in school 27 years ago, you arrived in, you know, late August, probably right before Labor Day. You, you went to classes for a month. The puck got, you know, you got on the ice October 1st. You played your first game. It was an exhibition around mid-October. And then you, you were into your schedule late October and you, you know, crunched your 34 games in somehow that way. Nowadays, these kids, basically the, the season ends for them. Um, they go home after their exams for about a month. And then the entire returning class, along with the recruits, are on campus by late June, early July. Now, that just doesn't just give you an advantage in the weight room and maybe them getting to skate a little bit together, getting some ice time from the captains and all that sort of stuff, but it gives you the chance to take more classes. Right. And what most programs are doing is having their kids take at least two classes in the summer. Um, one class, you're stuck there during winter breaks. In most schools, you can facilitate to take at least one class between that time you get back after Christmas and the time you start, which is usually, usually around uh, the third or fourth Monday in, uh, in January that you're back. So you can take another class in there. If you really push it and take a night class, you can pull two up. So kids are just – the coaches always saw that as a way to just take, off, take the stress off the academic uh, schedule when you're actually playing. And, you know, unless you take your required four classes and that's it and you don't take anything more. Uh, but what it's turned into is these kids are now actually getting enough credits that they're able to graduate after three years. Some are, some are done in, in, you know, two and a half. And once you've done that, that gives you the ability to transfer to any program without having to sit out. Um, there's strict rules about it. You have to, um, you have to contact the school that you want to go to. They can contact you. Uh, you hear it. I don't know how popular college football is on your side of the border, but, the transfer portal that they've had for college football, that's kind of what's being used as well for hockey um, so that you can alert schools that you're looking to leave that program and, you know, be picked up. So it's, you know, it's, it's something that's, it's not going away because it's now being facilitated by the coaches. It's now being facilitated by the NCAA. It's, it's good maybe for teams like we just mentioned, Northeastern and Providence that needed somebody to fill a tough hole, like, yeah. in, like the goaltending position, but do I, I don't know if I love it. I just, it's so hard to watch a player who played three years and was somebody that you grew attached to now being on a competing team in, in the case of Pantano in the exact same league. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be hard for Merrimack fans when Northeastern plays them to watch a player that they, that they loved. I mean, he was their, usually the best player on their team. I would have to think he was their MVP last year and now he's playing against you. So it's probably very difficult in a sport, this is not professional athletics, and I think that people, you know, associate that with the pros. And oh, okay, well, we traded him away. Okay, we lost him to free agency, but hey, you just lost a kid that you thought you'd have for four years, and but his last season, he's playing for another team. Yeah, you don't see that. Just don't think in my head. I don't think of player movement nearly as much as it's happening when I think of college hockey or NCAA uh, sports, for that matter. I don't. Uh, I don't envision the. Uh, the, the the movement from team to team or program to program as much as it's uh, as it's become so it's it's a new thing uh, to wrap my head around um, the Hobie Baker winner four of the last six years has come from Hockey East uh, who is the prime candidate out of that league for the Hobie this year in your mind oh that's that's tough I mean there's there's a lot of uh, talent in this league um, I don't know if they have a favorite this year 
Well, it's a, it's a good question because obviously there's been some really high end talent. There's obviously those type of players again, um, within this league. I look at guys like David Cotton and Logan Husko at Boston College. Um, you know, down the line, there's probably going to be players that emerge. Um, we, we also have, you, know, you have some of these freshmen that were drafted in the fresh, first round. I don't expect to have a Jack Eichel this year, but you just never know. Uh, when somebody like that's going to come along. So I'll, I'll give you one player to, to think about. And he's been the most overshadowed player for three years at his university. Uh, but Stephanus Lekas at Vermont is probably the most talented goaltender um, we've seen in this league in a long time. But he's not getting the wins because the team in front of him just doesn't score goals. And if Vermont, and I talked to Kevin Snedden about this, if Vermont can be – a little bit more competitive on the offensive side. And he loves his team this year. He said that this is the best chemistry he's had as a team since his 2009 Frozen Four team, which lost to Boston University in the Frozen Four. He said that this is the best team he's had since then in terms of just the chemistry in the locker room. Maybe the talent isn't the, the same, but he has a good feeling about this team. If, if that team has some success and Leck has put some real numbers up, I know it's hard for a goaltender to win the Hobie, but – in terms of being one of the best candidates, he could be easily one of the best candidates in the league. Lastly, Jimmy, and I, it might be two, three years uh, premature to ask the question, but the new legislation there uh, out in California that uh, is going to enable college athletes to um, bring in some money, get some sponsorship money or uh, endorsement money, how could that affect college hockey if and when it gets to the point, I, I don't know how many states have followed suit with California that also have NCAA hockey programs in it, but is there a concern? For uh, college hockey at all, or I think the biggest concern is probably to the NCAA in general, and the fact that a state felt the need to kind of be the proactive uh, party. If the NCAA had been proactive about this themselves, they might have saved some problems. But there, it's it's a very it's a, such a fine line. So what the state of California has said is that you can basically earn endorsement deals while you're in college. They're not being paid technically to play by the university. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that w- that's the way the law would say. Now, I'll start with the, the obvious that if anybody accepts an endorsement deal right now in the state of California, no matter what the law is, the NCAA can disqualify them because every member institution is still a member at will. And every student that goes to those colleges goes to on their own choice. So you know the rules when you go in there. You take money, you're automatically disqualified from playing. That said, if this becomes something that all 50 states were to adopt, um, then the NCAA would have to take action, even if it was something that, say, eight states, you know, adopted. It's going to take some time, but it's, it's something that likely will happen. If that's the case, then you're seeing positives. I don't think that, that hockey is going to be affected too much. Sure, some of the high-end players might get some deals with um, some of the equipment companies, get some deals with some of the sponsors. That also, you know, work directly with the NHL on either side of the border. Um, but I don't see it being affected. But here's the, the, the slippery slope. You want to play a really bad at your school, and one of the boosters decides, hey, you know what, what if I offer him $3 million to endorse my construction company? Right. <laughs> you know, that's not exactly the intention of this. This is mostly so that players that are in football and basketball aren't losing out on these sneaker endorsements. They're not lo- losing out on some equipment endorsement contracts. But 
could you see a school that has a ton of money in their athletic association, or I'm sorry, in their alumni association to, you know, kind of ring the arm of an alumnus or just an alumnus go and do it themselves and say, Hey, I want my team to be the best. I like to brag about how good my school is. And I will then I'll, you know, drop you a, a, a sum of money and we're just going to call it an endorsement deal. So that's the slippery slope that I don't think, anybody is really thinking about right now. It's not being thought about it, especially by the lawmakers. I think the NCAA has thought this through a hundred times. They've had to over their existence. But when you try to have legislation at a state level affect a private organization like the NCAA, it just doesn't work. And I think there will be so much. I mean, this will end up in the Supreme Court someday, likely. <laughs> it just feels like something, there's too much money involved not to. But I understand the NCAA probably has to take a hard stance so that money can't influence. So you basically can't buy championships. And that's one of the dangers that comes along with all the money that gets pumped back in. I wonder if one of the potential side effects is uh, it opens the door to uh, CHL players to have NCAA eligibility. I mean, guys who are playing in the Canadian Hockey League who are deemed ineligible because there's 20 guys in the CHL who have also signed uh, their entry-level contracts with, with their NHL team. They're not getting paid during the season, but they've got their signing bonus, and that deems them uh, professionals. And so then those 20 or 30 players uh, make the entire Canadian Hockey League a professional league in the eyes of the NCAA, which to me is crazy. But does that then potentially mean that this uh, a bunch of players would then become eligible for college hockey? It, there's possibilities. I mean, you know, don't forget, you know, CHL players haven't always been just strictly banned. You could go to the CHL, hate it, and come down and play in the NCAA. Yeah. But when you did that, the number of games you played at the CHL level at, back in the time, you then had to sit out. So if yeah. you played 15 games, you had to sit out 15 games. That has changed. I don't even think that that's allowed. I know that some European leagues, they still allow that. There's, a, there's actually one of the better, uh, I can't call him a freshman that's going to be playing at New Hampshire this year, went through that where he's been sitting out. He's going to be finally eligible to play somewhere around mid-November, mm-hmm. and he'll be a player to watch with New Hampshire. But uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, it's just too hard to predict how things um, will progress and whether the CHL – don't forget that the NCAA doesn't feel like regulating hockey. The only thing they really want to regulate is football and basketball because that's where – most, and I say most, now right. there's plenty of other, you know, examples, but that's where most of the impropriety lies. And just because it's so much tied up in TV revenues in those sports. But, um, I don't know. I, I, I just, I don't have a good pulse for whether or how hockey will be affected, but trust me, if a coach can get a competitive ed, edge using a new loophole in one of these rules, they're going to find a way to do it no matter what sport. They can be playing water polo. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so again, the coaches will always try to find every competitive edge they will. The graduate transfer rule is one that is an example. That's somebody found the loophole. They said, okay, let's go with it. I think it was Ron Pecknall, the Quinnipiac, I think was one of the first coaches I remember using it. And now everybody uses it. So any, any, if there's a way to get around it, people are going to get around it. But right now, I think it, it'll be status quo. This isn't going to happen quick. This is, as you said, four or five, maybe even further down the line, if it yeah. ever gets to take effect. Well, lots of stories to watch for this year, for sure. Uh, not just in Hockey East, but across the, the NCAA. Um, the lastly, is there a, a new commissioner for Hockey East yet? Not yet. Uh, the, the process, you know, because they have Joe Bertania for this season, 
uh, locked in under contract and he will, you know, he's a good man. He will finish out his contract very admirably. Um, they will take their time, I think, with this. I, I think maybe by January we're still going to start to hear, hear about the real candidates. I know there's been a lot of speculation, but um, I, I think it's going to be a process that probably won't settle itself out until probably the end of the season. Are you on the short list? I am not. Not even considering it. <laughs> that is not something that would that would fit my skill set. <laughs> well, Jimmy, I really appreciate your time. As always, uh, already looking forward to having you on again. All right, Keith. Thanks. Enjoy the season. I will enjoy the season, Jimmy. Thanks for that, and thanks for uh, making time for the Pipeline Show uh, once again. Always great when uh, Mr. Connolly is able to uh, come on the Pipeline Show and uh, educate us about some of the NCAA stuff going on. Again, the question of the week for this episode is, uh, who's your Hobie Baker pick for this uh, coming season? I threw up five Canadians uh, that I think deserve recognition. Ian Mitchell at Denver, Brinson Pashnuk of Arizona State, Wade Allison at Western Michigan and uh, a pair of Cornell Big Red players in uh, goaltender Matt Galaita and a forward Morgan Barron. You can let me know what you think. At TPS underscore Gee is how you get me on Twitter. Up next, we turn on the 2020 draft spotlight, heading to the WHL for an in-the-dub segment. Seth Jarvis of the Portland Winterhawks off to a good start this year and could be one of the uh, top players taken out of the WHL this coming season. Get to know him. Next, here on the Pipeline Show. Hey, this is Cody Glass from the Portland Winterhawks. Gets the draw. Glass walking towards the net. He scores! First period hat trick. It's natural from Cody Glass. And you're listening to the Pipeline Show. The pucks dropped on another WHL hockey season. This Saturday, your Edmonton Oil Kings go toe-to-toe with the Calgary Hitmen at Rogers Place. Don't miss your chance to see your Oil Kings live. Are you ready to rally for the next Battle of Alberta? Oil Kings, Hitmen. Saturday night at 7. Great family entertainment at Rogers Place starts at just $20 a seat. Save on day of game pricing now at oilkings.ca. 